Hi, this is Wilson with Renew Church OC. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We're a church for imperfect people only. We're in our series, LA is Corinth. Because as we walk through 1 Corinthians, we see so many similarities between that city and ours. Like LA, it was a port city filled with wealth and immigration. It was a sports capital, second only to the Olympics. Like LA, it was extremely sexualized with Aphrodite as the goddess of love and her temple just outside the city. A part of worshiping her was sleeping with one of her 1,000 priestess. Lastly, like LA, the church was deeply divided along political lines. Sound familiar? And the whole time, Paul is trying to call the community of Christ to live Christian values in the midst of this culture, and it's a fight. As we walk through this letter, we are encouraged and called in the same ways to live for Jesus while living in L.A. Doing our study in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the church of Corinth. And so far we've seen the Apostle Paul firmly rebuke and correct and even discipline this church. And as we've been studying, so far he has dealt with hero worship, factious discord, worldliness and fake wisdom, lawsuits and sexual sins. Now, he disciplines them because he loves them. We've studied this before, that Paul started the church in Corinth. This church was his baby. And so for a year and a half, this missionary settled with them and discipled them. He wanted to set their foundations. And as he left to continue his missionary journey, I'm sure that it hurt Paul when he heard news that the Corinthian Christians were falling and failing in sin. Ask any parent who has a rebellious child. Their heart aches for that child. They discipline them, not because they hate them, but the opposite, because they love them and they want what's best for them. And that is the same desire of Paul. His desire is, uh, for, them is to, uh, for them is to repent of their sins and to come back on track to being a healthy successful and productive church. He wants the best for them. Well, now Paul must deal with another problem manifesting itself in the Corinthian church, and that is arguments concerning meat sacrificed to idols. Now, you might look at this heading, and you might have heard what we've looked at and thought to yourself, why are we even talking about this, right? Does anyone in the United States deal with meat sacrificed to idols, does that bother anybody here in this church? It's completely irrelevant, you might think. It's inconsequential. But this was an important, real issue to the first century Corinthians that had to make decisions about it. This first century question actually exemplifies those decisions that we as Christians have had to make in every era, all the way up to this present one in the 21st century. We may not have a question about eating meat sacrificed to idols like they did in the first century, but we do have questions about real issues that we face in the 21st century. Questions like, as a Christian, should I be a Democrat or a Republican? What should my politics and policies be? What should my view on abortion be as a follower of Jesus Christ? Should I be pro-life or pro-choice? How do I handle the mask mandate? What's my view on vaccines? As a believer, is it okay for me to get a tattoo? 
As a guy, can I wear makeup? Is that okay as a Christian? What should my view on alcohol be? Can I have a beer with my friends at a bar? Can I smoke tobacco? Can I view rated R movies? I'm sure that's not a problem for any of you, right? Or TV shows, can I watch something with an MA rating? You see, we have so many questions, and I can go on and on and on. There are so many diverse cultural and personal questions, some ranging very high in importance to some just kind of uh, low in importance. You know, I love what Wilson put uh, in the beginning of the Corinthians series where he talks about Corinth, L.A., Because 1st century Corinth is a lot like 21st century L.A. when we study and we look at these things. You know, as we live in this world, we, like the Corinthian Christians living in the 1st century, are caught between two worlds. We have dual residences. We temporarily reside here on earth. Our temporary residence is here in the world. But that's not our citizenship. Our citizenship is actually in heaven. Our permanent home is with the Lord in his kingdom. And so because of that, our eternal residence as citizens of heaven is entirely different in its worldviews, in its interests, in its value, and even its economy from the world that we're living here today. The Bible tells us that we are in this world, but not of this world. And what a perfect perfect, uh, uh, phrase. We are in this world, but not of this world. So how do we live that out as a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian citizen in the midst of a society and a culture that has fallen and far from God? How do I make decisions that are pleasing and glorifying to our king and to his kingdom of which I'm a part? In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we're going to look at three principles on how to make decisions just like that. But before we get into the principles, and if you're taking notes, I want to give us a little bit of background and context so we understand the passage. Verse 1, now about food sacrificed to idols. The Greeks in the ancient world were polytheists. That means they worshipped a myriad of deities for every conceivable thing that they did in daily life. If you had the birth of a child, you would go to the temple of Aphrodite, who is not only the goddess of love, but also the goddess of fertility, and you would make a sacrifice to her for the birth of your son or daughter. If your loved one was sick and was healed, you would go to the temple of Asclepius, the god of medicine, and you would thank him for the healing of your uh, loved one. If you had an unexpected promotion, you would burn incense to Tyche, the goddess of fortune, for allowing you to have this great fortune in this promotion. If you were celebrating and you wanted to have a party, you would go to Dionysius, the god of wine and fertility. As a matter of fact, he was the patron god of the city of Corinth, and you would commit all kinds of revelry and all kinds of sins. Uh, What we as Christians would consider sins, they would consider it worship, and you would do that. If you wanted revenge on your enemy, you would invoke the name of Hades, the god of the underworld, to help you elicit a plan to destroy your enemy. You see, deities were interwoven into the fabric of Greek lives. Another thing we need to understand is meat was a very precious commodity. I know to many of us, meat is a very precious commodity to us today. But back in those days, meat was more rare and it was a precious commodity. So as worship, meat was dedicated to a deity in their temple 
before ever being sold in the marketplace. Meat was consecrated to a deity to exorcise demons and even bad luck. And they would do it in front of their images or idols before being sold to general consumption. They had a lot of superstitions back then. And they thought, you know what, if we're going to eat this meat, we need to exercise it of all this bad luck. As if meat had bad luck, right? But that's what they did. So most all meat in the Greek marketplace was sacrificed to an idol. Most all festivals connected with your life were held in temples. And you would have feasts in those temples. And guess what? You would have meat that was offered to idols. This would have been true in any Greek city, especially as one as prominent as the city of Corinth. Let me give you the context now. In the church of Corinth now, there were two different points of view that led to division within the congregation. The Jewish point of view as for Jewish Christians and the Gentile point of view for Gentile Christians. Now, the Jewish Christians, as a group, these Jews grew up steeped in the Hebrew Scriptures. They were taught from their youth that pagan deities weren't real. And so they had no problem eating meat sacrificed to idols because all those gods and goddesses and idols were just fiction and fantasy. And so they wanted the church to snap out of its superstitions and all join them in eating meat in the marketplace and in the temples. The Gentile Christians, as a group, grew up participating in these pagan worship practices. They had sacrificed and swore allegiance to these deities. They participated in parties, and they had participated in all kinds of sinful practices associated with the worship of these deities. And so they felt guilt and they felt like they were actually betraying Jesus when they ate meat that was sacrificed to these same gods and goddesses that they once held allegiance to in the marketplace. Do you see the context? So the Christians here writing to Paul about this issue were representing the Jewish perspective. They were probably the first Christians in Corinth. Remember Paul's MO as a missionary? When he shared the gospel, he would first go to the Jews. Remember in Romans he, he said to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. Why to the Jews first? Because they would be the ones logically who needed to hear this message. It was, you know, uh, it was primarily this idea that Jesus was their Messiah. That the prophets had spoken of. And so he would go to them in their synagogues. And many of them would come to Jesus. And then he would go into the Agora, the marketplace. And he would share a general gospel to the Gentiles. And those Gentiles became converts as well. So the Jewish group was almost always the first group to be saved in the churches. The Jews were the older Christians. The Gentiles were the younger Christians. The Jewish Christians wanted Paul to side with them. They wanted him to endorse their view. They considered their way to be the, quote, mature way. But Paul responds differently from what they expect. And in so doing, he gives us valuable principles on making spiritual decisions. And if you're taking notes this morning, I want to give you three valuable principles on how to make mature, godly decisions to the many questions that you will face in your life as Christians. Okay? So number one principle, is this in agreement with Scripture? Write that down. Is this in agreement with Scripture? Does this violate the Word of God? Okay, in verse 1 it says... Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. Here Paul affirms the Jewish Christian's point of view. 
that all of us as Christians possess knowledge from the Bible. Paul affirms it, okay? He, he understands that. The Jewish Christians really have given him three reasons why eating meat sacrificed to idols was great. Number one, we have knowledge from the Bible. Number two, based on that knowledge, an idol is nothing. And number uh, three, based on Bible knowledge, food doesn't bring us nearer to God. And do you know Paul affirms every one of those points? Because they're points from Scripture. Uh, let, me, let me show you, give you an example. Verse 4. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know, he's talking about knowing from Scripture, that an idol is nothing at all in the world. And remember, these Jews had grown up hearing the, the Old Testament. In Psalm chapter 115, verses 3 through 8, can you put it up? I think this is such a creative, descriptive way to really uh, hit home this point. This is what the psalmist says. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They, can, they have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Isn't that a very descriptive way of hammering home this point, right? That these idols that we make, uh, the, these idols that, that, that we worship are actually uh, made by human hands. We've manipulated in making them. And you know, the Old Testament continues with Isaiah 44, Jeremiah 10, Habakkuk 2. And then Paul says it this way in verse 4. He says, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. Here Paul affirms all that these Jewish Christians have reasoned, right? Because they go to the word of God. He even restates the Hebrew Shema, uh, Deuteronomy 6.4, where it says, Hear, O Israel, there is no God but one. He uses the same thing. The Jews growing up in this, uh, in this would, have, uh, would have been the first, this would have been the first scripture that they would have ever learned. Drop down to verse 8. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. That's another point, and Paul affirms it. He says it is true. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 15, 11, right? He talks about how a food is not what God is concerned of. It's what comes out of a person. And he affirms the truth that Peter said in Acts eleven nine. 9. He said everything you eat is clean. God doesn't care what you eat. And so this is shown in Scripture to be true. When you come to the questions of life, and you're not sure if it pleases or glorifies God, you need to go to the Word of God. I love that. Pastor Wilson, um, a few sermons ago, uh, gave a great point. He said there are two kinds of people in church, two kinds of people that sit here today. There are those that place themselves over the authority of the Word of God, and there are those that place themselves under the, the authority of the word of God. Those that place themselves above the authority. How do we know who they are? They're the ones who pick and choose what they like about the Bible. Oh, I like this truth. I like this truth. No, I, I could do without that truth. No, that's, that's a cultural thing for them, you know, way back when. And so they place themselves as the authority. But there are people who place themselves under the authority. And that's what we have to be, to submit to the word of God to act upon the word of God, to apply it to our lives. As Christians, we need to make the Bible our authority. Not human culture, 
not human philosophy, not human reason, not human religion, not human experiences. Our decisions must stem from Scripture. That is our authority. And as we look and we see the questions of life, we need to understand that we're in a spiritual warfare. That the battle we face is really our minds. Who controls your mind? Who masters your mind? And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but thoughts play a huge role in what we become. <clears throat> the great Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher in the 80s uh, gave this quote, and I love it. It's one of my favorite quotes. Think a thought long enough, and it will become a desire. Desire something long enough, and it will become an action. Act upon something long enough, and it will become a habit. Habitually perform those things long enough, and it becomes your character. Character lived out long enough becomes your destiny. So Margaret Thatcher says, watch your thoughts. Guard them. Because your thoughts are the entry point in your destiny. And that is so true. As a matter of fact, um, Scripture tells us the same thing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 3-5, God's word needs to become our authority. And this is what it says. For though we live in this world, and it's up here on the screen, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. So what we need to do in guarding our thoughts and in watching our thoughts is to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So the Bible is kind of like an airport x-ray. I don't know if you've been to the airport recently. Uh, a couple months ago, uh, we went to Hawaii. And I remember going through the airport. And it seems even you know, more restrictive, you know, going uh, to Hawaii. I remember uh, I had to put my bags through twice because my bags looked suspicious and they wanted to look at it twice. And I had to go through this machine, right, where I had to do this. And they had to check to see if I had anything dangerous that I was bringing on the plane or bringing into the, the state of Hawaii. They wanted to know and so they scanned everything. And that's what the Bible does. The Bible is our scanner. It scans every religious and philosophical and practical thought. And it makes sure that nothing dangerous or toxic enters our life. That's why it's so important to know the Word of God. So that we can detect truth from lies. I've got a great illustration. I'm going to ask my, uh, our pastoral interns to help. Uh, Becca, can you come up? And Kevin and Irwin, can you come up here? Let's give them a hand, okay? Because I'm going to embarrass them, so we should give them a hand for being good sports. Could you just stand uh, right here? And could it be Becca? I'm sorry, we didn't even practice this. You know, uh, we, we, we kind of did it this way. Becca here, and then Kevin in the middle, and then Irwin at the end. Okay. So this is my illustration, okay, of uh, taking every thought captive uh, to the obedience of Christ. Okay. So let's pretend, and because I'm a smart guy, let's pretend this is my mind, Okay. And you guys are all thoughts in my mind. So like 150 thoughts. That's about right because I'm pretty smart. I, I usually do that, okay? Now these three thoughts, these, these guys, these interns, which I love, these pastoral interns are awesome, okay? They are going to be thoughts that are trying to enter into my mind, okay? And we've got to determine whether they're good thoughts or bad thoughts. Whether we want them in our minds or whether we need to kick them the heck out, okay? 
All right, so the first thought comes in. This is the first thought, okay? And it sashays in, and it looks like a really bright, sunny, cheery thought, okay? It looks like a great thought, but we don't know yet. And this thought is commit to make the word of God your authority, okay? This is a thought that boldly comes in and says, listen, you need to commit to make the word of God your authority. You need to submit to it, act upon it. You need to apply it to your life. And this is a thought that comes to you as you're listening to this message. Now, is this a good thought or a bad thought? Help me out, thoughts. Is it a good thought or a bad thought? All right, you're clapping. Well, what does that mean? It's a good thought. Okay. Why is it a good thought? That's important. Why is this a good thought? Does anybody know? Come on, thoughts. you got to help me. Why is this a good thought? Because I feel like it's a good thought? Right? Because my uh, inclination or my experiences tell me this is a good thought? No, we've been studying. The word of God is that scanner. The word of God is the x-ray. The word of God, as I make this captive to Christ, says that, of course, this is a good thought because scripture tells me that we need to do this, right? Scripture tells me. So this thought is in agreement with the word of God, and so I like this thought. I like you thought. Please have a seat in my mind. Go ahead and go ahead. Let's give her a hand. All right, so this next thought comes in. It comes sashaying in, okay? Now, this thought is a handsome thought, a beloved thought, right? This, this, this thought, oh, my goodness, very charismatic thought. And this comes in, and this thought is you can have sex outside of marriage if you're truly in love. I mean, if you are truly in love, why be encumbered, right, by the system of marriage? You can have sex and enjoy physical intimacy with anybody if you truly love them. Now, is this a good thought or a bad thought? All right, it better be a bad thought, right? You're thinking, right? This is a bad thought. But why is it a bad thought? I mean, come on. Sex is pleasurable, right? You know, you really love each other. I mean, your, your emotions, right? Your, your feelings tell you it's a good thought. We need to go back to the word of God. Remember, we are holding captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. And what have we been learning in 1 Corinthians 5 through 7? Pastor Wilson has been teaching this. He's been teaching how sexual sin is, you know, is, well, sexual sin is a sin. I'm trying to think of how to say that, right? And marriage, the marriage bed is undefiled. And marriage is important. And sex within marriage is how God intended it to be. And so this thought is a bad thought because the word of God tells me so, right? So I cannot let you inside of my life. I cast you out. Go. Do not sit in my mind. All right, you can sit in my mind. It's all right. Let's go. As far as the east is from the west, I cast this thought out. Thanks so much, Kevin. All right. So this last thought is a thought, and it's snake handling. Okay? You might think, what? What is snake handling? Well, in the deep south, churches, certain churches, in order to test a person's faith, they'll let, let poisonous snakes bite them. Okay? They'll, they'll handle rattlesnakes and let them bite them. Now, let me ask yourself. Uh, let me ask you, sorry, would you let a poisonous snake bite you? No, you would not. But, but this thought comes in with some Bible verses. This thought comes in with scripture, and it says, no, I have scripture. James 1.3 says the testing of your faith develops maturity. Do you know you have to test your faith? Amen. No? All right. Luke 16:17 These signs will accompany believers. They will pick up poisonous snakes with their hands and it will not hurt them. Ooh, testing your faith 
picking up snakes. Yeah. Acts 28.5, the Apostle Paul, when he was in Crete, he was holding some uh, wood and a snake bit his arm, right? But he didn't die. Everybody thought he would die, but he didn't die. And then many people from the island of Crete came to Jesus. Oh, my goodness. So this is a good thought, right? How come everybody's quiet? Is this a good thought, right? No, it's not a good thought. And here's my point. As we further study the scriptures, we see that James 1.3 has nothing to do with doing this, right? Luke 16.17 is a descriptive. It's not a prescriptive passage. Acts 28.5 is the same thing. Paul didn't venture out to look for a snake, right? It just did that. So these are haphazard pieces of scripture that are out of context and they're sewn together. But yet, we see that happen too in the Gospels where Satan tempts Jesus by saying, if you are the Lord, you're going to do this. If you're truly the Messiah, you're going to do that. And he uses scripture. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says in Matthew 4, 7, don't put the Lord your God to a foolish test. You know, the point I'm trying to make is there are lies that are going to be disguised as truth. And there's so many cults out there that twist scripture just like we just twisted scripture. There's a thing called progressive Christianity that has a veneer of truth, but inside it's full of lies. Their desire is to deconstruct the word of God. It sounds really good, but really all it is is the liberalism of the 40s and 50s that Christianity was plagued with. They're just dressed up now in first cent- or 21st century attire. And so this thought is one of the most terrible thoughts. It's a lie disguised as truth. And so we have held this captive to the obedience of Christ. We found it to be a lie. Get out of my life. I cast you out in the name of Jesus. All right, let's give him a hand. You see, that's why it's so important to know our Bibles, so that we can be in agreement with the Word of God in our thoughts. Okay, so about meat sacrificed to idols. We can eat it, right? Because principle number one, it's in agreement with Scripture. Yes? Yes. So, okay, we're mature. Let's go have a Zeus burger in the temple. Let's go eat a hair a happy meal in the Agora. Let's go, let's, let's party it up. Let's eat. But it's important not only ha- to have the Bible knowledge in the head, we have to have something else. Because it's not enough. And here's our second principle. Our second principle is, is this in agreement with conscience? Is this in agreement with conscience? Not only do we need biblical knowledge in the head, but we also need a healthy conscience in the heart. Okay, Verse 7, let's look at it. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. Have you ever heard a sermon on conscience before? Right? Growing up, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on conscience, yet conscience is found again and again in Scripture. What is conscience? It's that small voice inside of you that acts as an inner guide to tell you what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong. When we watch cartoons, it, it was that little angel that sits on your shoulder saying, go ahead, you can do this, or no, you better not do that. You see, conscience is very important. And can I share with you, conscience is subjective. We've just talked about the word of God. That is objective. That's objective truth. But conscience is subjective truth. 
That means it's subject to time and culture and experiences. You see, human conscience judges things based on the way it's been formed through the experience that it has had in life. And so conscience can change over time. The Word of God objective does not change. But conscience can change with more information given to it and more time. Why is that important to understand that conscience is subjective? Because what is right for one person's conscience may be wrong for another person's conscience. Did you get that? Let me give you an illustration. In my 20s, basketball was my favorite thing. You know how like Pastor Wilson, volleyball is his thing now? In the 20s, basketball was my thing. Because I had a great vertical leap and I could hit 10, 15 footers. I can't do any of that anymore. Okay, I'm terrible. But anyway, basketball was my thing. So I played power forward, you know, uh, in high school. And uh, I would go out to the gyms and to the parks. I would play basketball. But I noticed, and I would play, and back then I was also in my 20s, I was a, a pastoral intern, right? And I would play, and I would always get in fights. And I would always talk trash. And I would, even in pastor, pastor, like, you know, pastor tournaments, I would get into fights. And so my conscience began telling me in my 20s, you got to stop playing basketball. Basketball is a sin, okay? Now, is basketball a sin? No, every guy would say, no, it's a virtue, Right? Basketball is wonderful. Listen, basketball is not a sin, but do you know it was a sin for me at the time? At that point, I needed, and my conscience told me, I need to fast from basketball because it was bringing out the worst parts of me. I was not mature enough to handle, you know, playing basketball. And so for a year, I fasted from basketball. My conscience was telling me, listen, that's wrong for you to do at this particular time. Now I'm fine. Okay? When you play, I won't hurt you or anything, right? I'll probably hurt myself more than I would hurt you. But see, that's how it goes. And I think about this, right? When Wilson was going through his time, last week he talked about it, taking him to Vegas would be the worst thing for me to do because Wilson loves gambling. Wilson's addicted to gambling. Me, I hate gambling, okay? I love the buffets. I love the shows. But if I lose $100, I, I will never, never forget that. It will be on my mind. I lost $100. Because I'm not that way. Wilson has that entrepreneurial spirit, thousands of dollars. I, I can't even lose $5. That's kind of how I am, right? So going to Vegas would not be sin for me, but it would be sin for him. And it's not sin for him anymore because he's over that. Do you understand how conscience works, right? Paul <clears throat> is talking about Gentile Christians who have spent their lives worshiping idols. And it's still fresh in their conscience, in their experiences, now that they're Christians, <clears throat> their conscience still tells them that it's wrong and it's bad and it's sin for them. The word weak conscience isn't meant to be pejorative. It's not meant that there is something morally wrong with them. It just means that they're sensitive because they're still young, they're green, they're raw. They're not ready to do that. I remember when I was a young pastor, uh, I was creating uh, a praise team. And I was in a conservative church where they didn't use all kinds of, you know, uh, 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 different um, uh, items, acoustic guitars, pianos, that's what they would use. And I, I wanted to create, you know, a praise team. And so I, you know, we bought electric guitar and a bass and drums. And I was uh, preparing a praise night. And I remember as I was doing this, we were going to have hundreds of people at this praise night. A key leader came to me and he asked to be excused from doing this. And so I was curious. I wanted to find out why. And he shared with me, you know, that he was at one time in a rock and roll band before he became a Christian. 
And he said that, you know, they became somewhat popular locally. And he was engaged in all kinds of sex and drugs and parties. And he said those musical, in- and he became a Christian, right? Wonderfully saved. And he said those musical instruments, that electric guitar, that bass, those drums, when he saw them and heard them, really bothered him. And he didn't want to participate in, in it. You know what my response was as a mature, caring leader? Do you know what my response was? What's wrong with you? What is wrong with you? And I began to show him like vineyard and, you know, and all these things and shows it, show him from scripture, listen, this is, you know, and, 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 and tell him all these things. Do you know I regret doing that? I was like, hey, you have to be at that praise night. You're one of my leaders. You have to be there, you know. If I could go back, I would have not done, I would have done the complete opposite of what I did to that, that, that leader. Because the Bible is telling us that when we have that weak conscience, right, we cannot violate another person's conscience. You know, and I think all of us, we have weak consciences in certain areas of our lives. The point is, do not violate your conscience. God has designed you with that conscience as a protector to the emotional and spiritual things in your life. That conscience is a bouncer that keeps out the areas that we're not ready for. So about meat sacrificed to idols, we can eat it, principle number one, because it's in agreement with scripture. Principle number two, we can eat it if it's in agreement with our conscience. Our conscience is not disturbed. Wow, let's do it now, you know, but still that's not all. Because there's a third principle. And this is the point that Paul is getting at in the whole chapter. Okay, The third principle is, is this in agreement with love? Is this in agreement with love? Does this violate love for others? Let's look in verse 1. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Verse 2. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. So Paul is telling these older Christians, sure you know the scriptures, that you have freedom to eat meat sacrificed to idols. We see it in scripture. But this insistence that the younger Christians shake their superstitions and audaciously do this with you is causing division in the Corinthian church. Can I get an amen? You still don't know the most important thing that you should know is what Paul is saying. And what's that thing? That love builds up. You see, the very thing that they think makes them mature is the very thing that makes them immature. Let me say that again. This is very important. The very thing that they think makes them mature, the knowledge that they have, the Bible knowledge that they possess, is the very thing that makes them immature. Why? Because love, because knowledge puffs up. And that's what they were. They were puffed up. They thought they were mature, but they were puffed up immature people. Because knowledge is not maturity. Love is. Love builds up. Let's continue in verse 9. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you in all your knowledge eating at an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister from whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their conscience, you sin against Christ. You see, love builds up. Imagine a 30-year-old Gentile convert. All his life he has lived with pagan, in a pagan understanding of the world. Every day he has existed worshiping idols. 
He's worshipped them in all the pagan religious systems. He's worshipped them in the temple of Aphrodite with prostitutes. He's worshipped them in the Feast of Dionysus with orgies. He has uh, served them. He has, he has lifted up offerings to them. But one day he hears the gospel and it radically changes his life. He has never felt the grace and the purity and the love that he has faced in knowing Jesus Christ. He experiences a total transformation from the old life that he was in bondage to. Now some older Christian says, hey, let's go to the pagan temple and eat meat. And he knows that it's sacrificed to idols. And so he feels uneasy. He feels uncomfortable. This is still too connected with his past pagan life. But that older Christian insists that if he's going to be a strong Christian, he needs to shake this off. And he persuades him to do this. And this young Gentile convert does it, but his conscience won't clear him. Paul is saying that that person will fall into sin. How will he fall into sin? Well, he may fall into guilt and depression because of what he did, because of the guilt he feels. He may fall into an old, the old sexual addictions of the past because you opened the door to it. He may be tempted to resent you for feeling defiled like he does. He may backslide and run from God, and he may run from the church. And you are the person, Paul says, that did this because of your knowledge. You have, sin you have sinned against Jesus. Your knowledge and freedom is not worth harming your brother or sister in Christ. Amen? You need to decide everything and how it affects other people. You need to decide how it affects the brother or sister sitting beside of you. Because love builds up. You know, I close with one illustration. There were five illustrations as I was looking um, at doing this, as I was studying it, that would be perfect to end with. I mean, five perfect ones. And then there was one that doesn't, doesn't kind of work. It's one that's not so perfect. And I'm going to use the not so perfect one. Because this one, one, excuse me, really hits my heart. So forgive me if it doesn't really fit 100%, but I like this one, okay? Uh, growing up, my brother and I... Um, we're four years apart, and I'm going to see actually my brother uh, today. We're going to have dinner together, and we're going to hang out our families. And so um, we're very close. But I remember when we were really little, uh, we used to go to McDonald's, and we used to get our own meals, okay? Uh, bigger than Happy Meals, but we'd get our own meals. And I remember as we'd sit there, as a kid, I remember uh, I would eat all of my French fries as fast as I could, and then I would steal his French fries and eat them. And watch him cry as I ate his fries, okay? I'm a bad brother, okay? Four years old. What's he going to do? I'm four years older. I'm huge, you know? He, he, can't, he, can't, he can't do anything about it. And I remember I did it a few times. And I remember one time I was doing that, okay? My brother was trying to eat really fast too. But I ate faster and I was eating his fries. And I remember my mom turned around. And he said, she said, David. She calls me David. She goes, David, you are, a, you are big brother. She goes, you are his big brother. She goes, how can you do that? Give him your apple pie. And I had an my favorite thing was the apple pie. So I had to give him the apple pie, right? And she said, I don't ever want you to take from your brother again, right? Because he's your brother. You need to love him. And as a matter of fact, you two are the only ones you got, right? You guys are siblings. You're the only ones in this world, right? My mom used that, that, that on me. And I remember from that point on, I, when we went to McDonald's the next time, you know what I did? I gave him half my fries, right? Right off the bat, I would give him half my fries. And to this day, I still have that feeling of he's, my, he's 45 years old. He's a doctor. He makes more money than me. He's fine. But I still think of him like, i got to give him fries, right? 
I got I, I to gotta watch out for him because he's my younger brother. And that's exactly what Paul is saying to us, right? This is, it doesn't work 100%, but bear with me. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying that's your younger brother. That's your younger sister, right? When you go and you do these things, you have freedom to do all these wonderful things. But remember how it affects your younger brother. Are you going to give uh, uh, are you going to give your brother fries? I guess it doesn't work. Are you going to give your brother fries, right? That's the idea because love builds up. Can I get an amen? All right, thanks for encouraging me, okay? Make right decisions be, with biblical knowledge in your head, with a healthy conscience in your heart, and with agape love in your hands. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that even this passage of scripture, which seems to be irrelevant to us, Lord, is really one of the most relevant things to our lives. And we pray that you would speak to us about these three principles and how to practice them. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Hi, this is Pastor Wilson again. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If our sermons have been a blessing to you, I'd love for you to consider supporting our church and ministry. As we approach the end of the year, we're asking our church family to consider investing into a special fund that support our interns and seminarians. Renew has a vision of investing in pastors for the next generation through our internship program. And your financial partnership can help set up a young pastor or missionary to faithfully serve the Lord for the next 30 to 40 years. I often dream about what Irwin or Kevin will do for the kingdom of God through their 30s, 40s, and 60s. Our goal is to raise $50,000 over the season. Would you consider joining us? You can give through PayPal or Venmo or by sending a check. All the information is on the description section of the podcast or you can visit our website and your investment is tax deductible. Thank you so much for being a part of our church family. If you're ever in the Fullerton, California area, Please drop by into our Sunday service. I'd love to meet you. God bless.